following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. While we are going to cover Arcanum 14 today, it's good to connect it with the previous Arcanum, the Arcanum of Death. We spoke extensively about the opera Turandot, the mysteries of the Divine Mother Death, as well as Arcanum 13, which stipulate the radical death of the ego, of the self. It is only by annihilating the ego that we can acquire light, insight, understanding. And likewise, it is only through Arcanum 13 that we can acquire temperance, balance, because this card is a card of equanimity, of serenity, of balance. The word temperance in the dictionary literally means moderation or self-restraint in eating and drinking, mostly in reference to alcohol. But if we look at the original etymology, there's something more profound. The word temperament relates to temperance, one's character one's virtues, one's psychological qualities. The word temperance comes from the Latin temperantia, moderation, as well as temparere, temperare, restraint. You also get words like temperature, heat, from temperance. But in what sense? In relation to the 14th Arcanum, When a blacksmith makes a sword, he tempers the steel in great adversity, great heat, great fire, and afterward places it, the metal, within water in a cool element, exposing the metal to heat and cold, two extremes, in order to find that perfect balance 
of a weapon that is very sharp and deadly. It's an allegory of the soul. How our consciousness must learn to face extremes, but with temperance, with balance. Because in life, we are consistently exposed to great ordeals, great extremities, in which we feel the fire of criticism or the cold of solitude. But in order for us to be well-formed as a soul, we must learn to go through both extremes, but without identifying with the mind. We have to face the ordeals of fire, the ordeals of water, the ordeals of earth, and the ordeals of air, which are all allegorized by the blacksmith Vulcan forging the sword of the soul and the armor for the great heroes, the great alchemists. So this doesn't mean that we go out looking for trouble, but it means that we learn to perform conscious works and be willing to suffer voluntarily for our past mistakes. Because as a result of karma, we are put in situations which are very difficult because we put those causes into place. But typically because we are asleep, we don't recognize the causal relationship from whatever present moment we are engaged in with our past existences, our past karma. But if we awaken our perception in the internal planes in meditation, we can make the connections and see this is why we are in the problem that we are at as a result of Arcanum 10 recurrence. So all the sufferings we face in this life are the result of our past actions. So we have to learn how to be tempered in a state of equanimity in order to face those problems with consciousness. And by acquiring a state of serenity, of dispassion, of peace, we can handle anything, no matter how challenging our job, our career, our responsibilities might be. When difficulties arise, we learn to face them with comprehension. And in that manner, we learn to diffuse all sorts of problems. Whether at work, we have clients who are difficult, who criticize us, who treat us poorly. But if we don't identify with their fire, the fire of their criticism, but learn to respond with sweetness, with love, we transform many situations which are disagreeable and turn it to our benefit. So we have to learn to face our karma with patience, with faith, and with intuition. Not rationalizing what should I do, but comprehending in the heart how I must act in relation to this person who is criticizing me or treating me with displeasure. We have to learn to receive the unpleasant manifestations of our fellow man with comprehension, with gladness. Personally, I work at a job. I work with clients who are very challenging. This week has probably been the worst in my career, but something that I've been reflecting on in relation to this card is learning how to be tempered, neutral, dispassionate, not from a state of blandness, 
or some kind of vague amorphous state where anything can go, but a state of clarity, of cognizance, in which you are balanced, and when someone treats you with aggression, you respond with understanding, with patience and love for that person who is criticizing you. And in that way, you dissipate their anger, their violence, because kindness is a much more crushing force than anger. If we act with anger, if we try to coerce our neighbor to do what we want, we're performing black magic because the mind wants other people to think and feel and do as we want. That's egotistical. But there's a better way relating to persuasion, as we spoke about previously. To persuade others is a much more dynamic force than simply trying to get someone to think and do what we want. But persuading them from our consciousness is much more profound. So we have to learn to face extremities with a great sense of awareness and patience. Friedrich Nietzsche, in his book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, explains Arcanum 14 very beautifully in his chapter on, I believe, the famous wise men, where he's criticizing those spiritual people who think they are very authoritative and that they have knowledge, but they have no temperament no temperance, no balance. He explains that in his very dynamic language, how we must learn to face great adversity without identifying so that we can, in the end, gain self-knowledge. Spirit is the life that itself cuts into life. With its own agony, it increases its own knowledge. Did you know that? Because when you have to face circumstances willingly, we bleed. There's an ego. We suffer. But if we're separating from our own mind, we learn to see what in us is suffering and to comprehend it so that it can be eliminated. And that suffering will cease. But we have to see it in action. That is how we gain self-knowledge. And the happiness of the Spirit is this. To be anointed and through tears, to be consecrated as a sacrificial animal, Did you know that? To be anointed by tears is to face great karma. To weep for our mistakes, our ego. And in that way, by sacrificing our own selves, our animal mind, we are consecrated, made holy, the soul made pure. And the blindness of the blind and their seeking and their groping shall yet bear witness to the power of the sun into which they have looked. Did you know that? Because all of us are blind spiritually. We lack illumination. We sit to meditate, we may not have understanding. Or we go to sleep at night, and many hours pass, we don't see dreams or anything. It's common in the beginning. And yet we are seeking for that solar light, which we invoke, such as the runes, the rune fa, the root of the Father, or any exercise of runic yoga. And that testifies and bears witness to the power of the sun because eventually we will see, and little by little, in relation to our daily work, we gain light, we see our mistakes, and that encourages us and inspires us to change, to work. And the lover of knowledge shall learn to build with mountains, It means little that the spirit moves mountains. 
Did you know that? So he's playing a little bit with Christ's doctrine. It may seem a little blasphemous, but he's emphasizing Nietzsche, this author, that we must build the solar bodies. We must be born again. And having little victories in the day is good. We move mountains, certain situations change. We gain wisdom. But that should be accompanied in a very high sense by work with Tantra. So that path itself is accelerated, is catalyzed, is augmented, expanded, made more efficient. You know only the spark of the Spirit, but you do not see the anvil it is, nor the cruelty of its hammer. The hammer is a phallic symbol. The anvil is a symbol of woman, the uterus. And in that way, when husband and wife or working in a matrimony, in alchemy. The hammer strikes with Christic will against the mind, against temptation, and transmutes the force of the sexual energy and works with a great heat that forges the sword of the kundalini that rises victoriously in the spine. So we only know the spark of the spirit. In many senses, we may have certain flashes or illuminations by working with the creative energy But when we go deep into meditation and experience our being, our spirit, he's a great warrior, a Martian force, because Chesed in the Kabbalah relates to Mars as well as Jupiter. And so he's very wrathful against the ego, very profound, and also the compassionate, the merciful. Verily, you do not know the pride of the Spirit, but even less would you endure the modesty of the Spirit, if ever it would speak. So now we notice that he's talking about extremes, hot and cold, pain and pleasure, great difficulties. The pride of the Spirit, we can translate as dignity, solar virtues, which knows right from wrong and knows how to act in any circumstance, any problem. But also, would these famous wise men not be able to endure the modesty of the Spirit? Because humility is a virtue that is very rare. And the one who has it is very simple, not complicated. Which is why Samael and Veyar stated that many people do not understand the initiates because they're simple, not stupid. In the West, we think that someone who's simple-minded is not intellectual, is not educated. But simplicity is much more profound and beautiful in which a person does not assume anything of him or herself. And you have never yet been able to cast your spirit into a pit of snow. You are not hot enough for that. Hence, you also do not know the ecstasies of its coldness. So what is a pit of snow? A symbol of chastity. In the internal planes, if you see a mountain, it's a symbol of entering the path seeing the Father. In the snow, of course, that caps the mountains is chastity, the transmuted sexual energy, which is cold, pure. So Nietzsche is making fun of these so-called famous authors, spiritual people, who've never been able to cast their spirit into a pit of snow, who've never been able to reach that height, because they're not hot enough for that yet. And to be hot is to be working with heat, the sexual energy in a marriage. 
And therefore, these people know nothing of the soul and the spirit. They don't know the ecstasies of its coldness, of seeing our divine being from firsthand experience, who never had to face great adversities with temperance. In all things, however, you act too familiarly with the spirit, and you have often made wisdom into a poorhouse and a hospital for bad poets. You are no eagles. Hence, you have never experienced the happiness that is in the terror of the spirit. And he who is not a bird should not build his nest over abysses. So what is that terror of the spirit? We often talk about the Divine Mother as the terror of love and law. So divine that we are terrified before that presence, which is so pure and so beautiful that it fills the soul with ecstasy, with longing. And he who is not a bird should not build his nest over abysses because this path is dangerous. You have to fly very high and not look down. Or if you look down, to not identify because one can fall in, an allegor- in, in a literal sense, but allegorically, we are speaking here. You are lukewarm to me, but all profound knowledge flows cold. Ice cold are the inmost wells of the spirit, Refreshing for hot hands and men of action. So, people who are not working in alchemy, or better said, people who are not working in gnosis, who don't know how to work with this sexual energy, whether as a single or as a married person, they're lukewarm. They have neither heat, neither are they cold. They don't work in a marriage, in alchemy, and neither are they cold from chastity as a single person. So ice cold are the inmost wells of the spirit, refreshing for hot hands and men of action. This is a reference to solar brahmacharya, in which after working in a marriage, and a master of the fifth initiation of major mysteries can take a pause in his work or her work in order to work as a single, like the present Dalai Lama, who is walking that path. You stand there honorable and stiff and with straight backs, You famous wise men, no strong wind and will drives you. Have you ever seen a sail go over the sea, rounded and taut and trembling with the violence of the wind? Like the sail, trembling with the violence of the spirit, my wisdom goes over the sea, my wild wisdom. But you servants of the people, you famous wise men, how could you go with me? Thus spoke Zarathustra. What is that ship of wisdom is the 14th Arcanum, the Ark of the Covenant, Noah's Ark, which saves the initiates from the great flood of degeneration and destruction that is impending upon this humanity. Temperance is precisely the work with this card, this 14th Arcanum. And so, temperance, in an esoteric sense, means abstention from the alcohol or the wine of fornication, the wine of adultery, which has inebriated and indoctrinated this humanity. People are addicted to degeneration, to behaviors which produce suffering. And so temperance is precisely to go against that current that is swallowing all of humanity in the abyss. So let us look at this card. This card. 
We notice that on the bottom left is the sign of cancer because this work is the work with the waters, the waters of life, upon which the ship of alchemy sails. Notice that the sign of cancer is two circles with two lines encircling each other, which, if you're familiar with the Arabic alphabet, reminds us of two wows, or Hebrew letter vavs, encircling each other, primarily because vav is the spinal column, and the sign of cancer is when an alchemist husband and an alchemist wife work together with the waters, within the seas. We also find the sign of Jupiter on the bottom right because it is through the work of alchemy, the work of this card, the work of the transmutation of our energies in which we receive the scepter of the kings, the purple robe of resurrection. So in this card we see in its waters, its base, we have three flowers which is entwined by a serpent Samuel and Vera mentions that these three flowers represent Sat, Chit, Ananda in Hinduism, which is Sanskrit terms referring to, to quote uh, Swami Shivananda, existence, knowledge, bliss absolute. A reference to our spirit our divine soul, and our human soul. Sat, as we did in the mantras, Om, Tat, Sat, reminds us of the Christ, the truth. Sat is the innermost, Atman. Chit is Buddhi, the divine soul. And Ananda is the human soul. Chesed, Geburah, Tifereth, and Kabbalah. So when we're doing those runes, the rune man, invoking om, tat, sat, we're invoking the truth to descend into our three brains, our nervous systems, and to circulate as consciousness, as force. It is by working with that energy, having consciousness of that force, in which we unite with sat, the truth, in order to experience bliss, and as we always notice from our exercises of runes, they provide a lot of force, especially when done with a lot of prayer, concentration. But also, why the symbols of flowers, as we see in this card? In the internal planes, flowers represent virtue. To see beautiful roses, immaculate flowers, refers to the awakening of the soul the development of the consciousness, divine qualities, which arrive and rise from the mud of the earth, from the impurities of the soul. By comprehending and annihilating the ego, the lotus flower of our spirit blossoms. These three flowers also represent <clears throat> the sacred fire, the raw matter, and the mixture Or in alchemical terms, 
sulfur, salt, mercury. Or, neshama, nefesh, ruach. The three types of soul in alchemy. A reference to the creative fire of Kundalini, the enseminus, and the spiritual mercury that is extracted every time we work with runes or transmutation exercises to work with our energies. In this image, we see an angel who is wearing a vesture in the form of a square and a triangle. According to Samael and Vior, the square in esotericism reminds us of the four bodies of sin, which if you have an experience in the astral plane and you're shown a table, it refers to the four lower bodies, Malkut, Yesod, Hod, Netzach, physical body, vital body, astral body, mental body. We call that the lower quaternary or the four bodies of sin because our defects emerge or manifest in those vehicles. But also on this vesture, we find a triangle, which is a symbol of the Trinity, as we explained. Chesed, Geburah, Tipereth. Spirit, divine soul, human soul. Sat, Chit, Ananda. We experience full bliss of the being when our mind, our heart, our body, our soul, when our lower qualities are united with the being. That is when we experience the truth in its full glory. We find that this angel is illuminated by his sun. There are seven rays that are visible and seven that are invisible. The seven visible rays relate to the seven planets. Moon, Mercury, Venus, Sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, or the seven spiritual rays in which our inner spirit develops. So each one of us has our own particular ray. We spoke previously how when every monad comes into the universe, every spirit, he enters in relation to one of the seven cosmic influences governed by the archangels, because every ray is governed by an archangel. The moon is governed by Gabriel, the lunar ray. The mercurial ray is governed by Raphael. The uh, Venusian ray is governed by Uriel. The solar ray by Mikael. The Martian ray by Samael. The Jupiterian ray by Zachariel. And the Saturnian ray by Orifio. So our spirit acquires qualities relating to those influences from the solar logos in order to gain experience. And that's eternal. When you go into meditation and you experience your inner God and what ray you are from, that is something that is indispensable to you, your nature. It's something that's very divine. And some people ask, what is the value of knowing my ray? And many people like to look at their foreheads because someone there mentions that you can find your ray by looking at how many transverse lines you have over your head, on your forehead. One ray, one line. Two ray, the second ray, two lines. The third, fourth, fifth, up to the seventh. Well, that's useful. It's even better if we learn to go into meditation and ask our inner God, show me my ray. To what ray do I belong? 
Because in that way, your being will show you qualities that relate to your spirit. And the seven rays are related to different qualities. The moon with growth, procreation, birth, life, development. The mercurial ray with science, philosophy, knowledge. The Venusian ray with art, chastity, music, beauty. The solar ray with courts, with high regal positions. The Martian ray with karma, the police of, of the law in the spiritual realms. And likewise, Zachariel in the Jupiterian ray relates to politics. The Saturnian ray with death, lands, titles, things of that type. And so when we know our ray, it's like knowing our social security number. You use it for so many things to get around in life. So when you know your true identity, your qualities of your spirit, that is a light that illuminates you like this woman or this angel. And that light will help you to understand many qualities about temperance, about your true nature. Specifically because when you know if you are from the Martian ray, you know that there are certain qualities that relating to strength, with conflicts, with combat, not necessarily physical, but psychological, that become indispensable for one's development, one's career. Some people may be inclined towards science, mathematics, philosophy. They may be related to the mercurial ray, but not necessarily the case, because there are different qualities that overlap. There are general qualities relating to spirit, which are important to know, to meditate on. This sun has seven invisible rays, referring to the seven chakras, which are invisible to physical senses. But when you develop those qualities in yourself, it's more real than physical sight, than anything, because it's an inherent quality of yourself, which we activate through the runes, through mantra, through prayer. In this card, this angel is mixing two cups. In the gold cup, she has the red elixir, referring to man, husband. And in her other hand, she has a silver cup, mixing a white elixir, woman, wife, sun and moon, oranomd, male, female, vav zayin. When she mixes those two cups together, she is forming the elixir of life. Because when you work with those two channels in your spine, ida pingala, daily, and are transmuting your energy daily, you are acquiring long life. <coughs> Swami Shivananda mentioned in his books on pranayama that when people perform that exercise with chastity, with purity, they stay young, they stay healthy. Their life is uh, extended. But in a more profound sense, when husband and wife are working in alchemy and they reach towards the end of the path, they can achieve resurrection. Which is the death of desire and the rebirth of the spirit from our own ashes. Because Nietzsche talks a lot about in that book how we must carry our ashes up to the mountain 
Meaning, in order to enter initiation, you have to die so that by fully illuminating the ego, we can resurrect. So many alchemists in the medieval era spoke abundantly about the elixir of long life, about resurrection, about the need to find the fountain of youth. And many people have interpreted this literally in a very silly sense that someone's going to drink some physical water from some fountain is going to live forever without doing anything psychologically. But the reality of resurrection is that by being an alchemist, transmuting the light of our defects into the gold of the spirit in a marriage, that is how we build the soul, build mountains, build the solar bodies. And so this elixir of alchemy has always been sought by medieval philosophers, scientists. And all of this relates to the 14th Arcadum primarily because 14 is the division of 7 plus 7. Septenary man, septenary woman. The lower seven bodies of the tree of life. Malkut, Yesod, Hod, Netzach, Tiferet, Giburah, Chesed, within man and woman. When you have a man and a woman who are united in the seven planes of consciousness, you have a perfect matrimony. Meaning, affinity of thought, feeling, will. And the spirits of both people agree to work in alchemy. Their union forms this card, 14, signified by the seven rays of the sun that are visible and the seven that are invisible. The number seven is a very profound number, as we explained. Primarily because human beings have seven centers. Intellectual, emotional, motor, instinctive, sexual. Superior intellect, superior emotion. So when husband and wife are working with those seven centers together, as well as those lower seven bodies of the human machine, you perform Arcanum 14. You achieve illumination. Because once those seven centers are balanced, then the light fills the mind. Because the intellect is subdued, the heart is inflamed, the sexual energy, the movement, instincts, and qualities of our desires are controlled. So that you have light. Because by controlling desire, by eliminating it, and working with the seven chakras of our spine, we gain light. It also reminds us of the law of the musical scales, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si, in which we find after do, re, mi, you have a conscious shock before the note fa, which is why when we do the rune fa facing the sun, we are working with the fourth state of consciousness as well as the third state, dianoia, noose, awakened consciousness and spiritually illuminated consciousness. Also, we have the seven types of human beings, we explained. The instinctive, the emotional, and the intellectual. Do, re, mi, the lower three people on the septenary scale. When you work with a rune fa, and you're conscious of what we're doing, and you're doing the mantras in a profound way, letting the sound vibrate, circulate, let your consciousness swim in the energies that are invoked, until your soul is like the bee working with the honey, 
with the, with the pollen. You learn to access the fourth uh, shock or the fourth state, which is the psychologically equilibrated human being. Because the root note fa, marvelous forces of love, revive my sacred fire so that my consciousness will awaken. Fa, fe, fi, fo, fu. But in a prolonged way, with each syllable being extended till we're out of breath, we're working with the shock of the consciousness to spark our awakening. Marvelous forces of love, revive my sacred fire so that my consciousness will awaken. And then we do work with the note fa. But afterward, there is a higher shock that is experienced. Fa, sol, la. And then the second shock relates to entering the note si, which is much more elevated. A person who is in the note, working with the note fa is a psychologically equilibrated human being. The note soul is working with the solar astral body. The note la with the solar mental body. But in order to create the solar causal body, we have to work with the note C, which is much more refined. So there's levels of refinement in which we're bringing the energies and perfecting them so that we have greater power and more responsibility, which is why one must be like an eagle looking over an abyss. Because that energy can be misused easily if we don't work on the mind. We spoke previously about the hydrogen C12 and Arcanum 12. And Gurdjieff spoke abundantly, as well as Ospensky, about the law of the musical scale. How in order to create something spiritually, you have to work with those shocks. Overcome, do, re, mi. Instinct, emotions, intellect. Your three brains. And we do that by working with energy and meditation. Afterward, as we're working in a marriage, one develops the solar astral body, solar causal body. In order to maintain those shocks, we have to be meditating very assiduously because we have to refine the mind, develop the consciousness. In order to reach those states, we have to be in a state of equanimity. So the first challenge for most people is Overcoming the intellect, overcoming emotions, overcoming sexuality. Most people get stuck in that level and they can go up and down, up and down because they can't comprehend or need to work more diligently understanding the intellect, the heart, and sex. But when someone is acquiring balance, temperance, the fourth state of consciousness, or better said, the fourth uh, musical note, the note fa, one is acquiring psychological balance. But once you are balanced, then you have to go higher. You have to refine that state. And then you do that by maintaining your chastity, developing your three brains, but also acquiring development through Arcanum 14. So obviously, the musical scale becomes much more profound and actualized when husband and wife are working together. There's a more force. So when we work with the musical scale in a marriage, we take the energy that is rising up our spine through the seven notes in order to create a solar vital body. So the physical body becomes Christified in its state. Likewise, 
In a third musical octave, we create the solar astral body. In the fourth, the solar mental body. In the fifth, the solar causal body. And likewise, you go up the tree of life, the lower seven sephiroth, the musical scale as well, which correlates. So we have to create the bodhicitta, which is the vital Christic body, the solar astral body, the solar mind, and the solar will, which we do gradually. And Arcanum 14 synthesizes this doctrine very beautifully. Samayan Vera mentions that this card is broken down into three parts. Transmutation, transformation, and transubstantiation. So in this next image, we have an alchemist working in the laboratory, reminding us of the great masters of the White Lodge who achieved resurrection, like Nicholas Flamel and his wife Perinel, which Samayan Vera mentions are living in India now. Paracelsus is living in a mountain in Bohemia, in a temple in the Jinn state, the fourth dimension, the vital world. Sanat Kumara is in an oasis in the Gobi Desert. And this part of this doctrine is always very challenging for students, and even missionaries, who don't really understand how is it possible that someone can live forever, have the fountain of youth. It seems so far-fetched and so divorced from our daily experience that people don't believe it. Or if they're in this doctrine, they, they have doubts. Because it's so unusual. This is why when Salman Vera would give lectures on television and they asked him about resurrection, he was always very clear. He always said, these are the facts and before them we must bow. Because he had personal knowledge of those masters directly. And personally, when I've spoken with the master Samael and Vior in the astral plane, he's always been telling me that he is resurrected already. He says, I have the power to be in many places at once. Abilities that are just so incomprehensible at our level that he can manifest physically in different places if he wants. This is something he told me. So... I have faith in that and I strive to reach that level at one point. But there are many masters who reach that degree. Sanat Kumara, who is the founder of the College of Initiates in the physical plane. He's referred to as one of the four thrones, the four Kumaras, the four Shaddai. And he was always attendant upon the initiations of Samael and Vior in the internal worlds would always be leading those rituals because he was initiating many masters in this physical plane as well as in the eternal planes. So a great being. And those who learn to develop their creative energies and never waste it, if that energy can give birth to a physical child, it can also give birth to the soul, the spirit, our being. And if it's always circulating, it's always creating, always giving life. So the elixir of long life, as Salma Island Vero speaks about abundantly, is given to those masters who reach resurrection so that their physical body, which enters into the fourth dimension and can manifest physically, never loses vitality, its youth. And so these people, these masters live forever with the body. 
in order to work for humanity. Not because they want to have powers like people in this day and age want and abuse if they could have it. But divinity is not blind. That type of development is given to very radical initiates. But of course, the medieval alchemists always strive to find eternal youth. And there are many who achieved it. In Arcanum 14, we also have transformation. There are many transformations developed in this work. Transformations of energy. Transformations of the mind. Of the consciousness from its egoic states to its divine states. Energies transform, give life, fluctuate constantly. Einstein stated that matter becomes energy, energy becomes matter. So with this principle in mind, it should not surprise us that in this work of the Gnostic doctrine, we have exercises that can help us to take our physical body and enter the jinn state, which is the fourth dimension. So many mythologies teach the art of shape-shifting of course, there's positive shape-shifting and there's negative shape-shifting. Among the Aztecs and the Maya, you had the Tiger Knights, the Jaguar Knights, the warriors who, who can, through prayer and meditation upon Quetzalcoatl and Tonatiu, as well as Tonanzin, the Divine Mother, would learn to take their physical body and put it into the internal worlds so that it can take shape, any shape, any animal, any form. Very real process, which, again, a lot of Gnostics struggle with because they don't have the experiences of that. But Samayan Vera provided those exercises and we can have those experiences. Personally, as I'm going to relate to you some experiences about transformation, I'll share some first-hand experiences with this. But, of course, it's very profound. In the Egyptian mythologies, we have the sparrow hawks the head of human beings. In this image we have, I believe, an image of one of these sparrow hawks hovering over a dead, uh, the dead, a mummy. A symbol of how when the physical body dies and the initiate enters the internal planes, he does so with cognizance. Because they have wings in the internal planes means to be, symbolically speaking, flying in those regions. Because in the astral plane is governed by levitation, by laws of plasticity, elasticity, shape-shifting, changing form, in which we can fly in those regions with full cognizance. And less laws there, more profound. But likewise, this sparrow hawk refers to the solar bodies, solar astral, solar mental, solar causal, because when you develop those bodies, you have the conscious capacity to enter those dimensions with full awareness without forgetting what you're doing or where you came from or where you're going. Of course, having the lucidity of that takes time, takes progress. But somebody who has those bodies developed, whether in this life or from previous lives, it's very easy for them to enter those states because they're just recapitulating their development from the past. And in those dimensions, one can fly in the air, fly over the mountains, and... Personally, I've done this many times, flying many places, because in that dimension, you don't have to walk. 
You can also think of a place, beg your Divine Mother, please take me to the planet Mars in the astral plane. And you can arrive there or your Divine Mother can take you like a magnetic force, a pull, lifting you in the air and then sending you out into space. We've done this many times. So a lot of people in the physical plane, as they're going through their daily life, they want to have vacations in a physical sense. But personally, I'd, I'd like to take vacations in the astral plane, much more profound. But we have to earn those experiences. So by transforming ourselves into birds, in an allegorical sense, we can fly in the world of the dead, fly overseas, cross mountains. Samayan Veyor mentions in his book, Esoteric Medicine and Practical Magic, how his wife, Master Lilantes, would teach him jinn science and putting his physical body in that fourth dimension, was traveling over mountains and she was testing him to see how brave he would be. Because to have one's body in that state, obviously, as one has become accustomed to it, is very unusual. So in this Egyptian image, we also see a figure with wings outstretched. I believe that's the Egyptian Ba, which Samaan Vera mentions in his book, Cosmic Teachings of a Lama, that the soul of any Egyptian hierophant has four bodies. The mummy, the Ka, or the astral body, the Ba, the mental body, and the Ku, the causal body. It's interesting that the Persian Sufi poet, I believe Faruddin Attar, wrote a book called The Conference of the Birds. And Samayan Vera mentions that the best of Sufism comes from Persia in its most pure sense. His book relates many teachings relating to transformation, as we're going to explain. It's a poem about a group of birds decide to meet who will be their king, who will be their lord. And the hoopoe tells them that they should seek their sovereign in the valley of Simorg. And they have to journey through seven valleys in order to reach their end, their end goal. Reminding us of the seven sephiroth of the tree of life, how by rising up those seven sephiroth initiations, we reach the king, our inner spirit, our god, However, when they're on their travels, many die. Many even die the moment they hear that they have to travel so far because they get so discouraged. It's a symbol of how anyone entering this path, they hear how difficult it is. Many run away. They don't get past the first stages. But those who are sincere enter seven initiations of fire. Relating to the seven valleys of this poem, the valley of the quest, Malkut, the valley of love, Yesod, the Valley of Knowledge, Hod. The Valley of Detachment, Netzach. The Valley of Unity, Tiferet. The Valley of Wonderment, Geburah. And the Valley of Poverty and Annihilation, Chesed. It's interesting that at the very end of this poem, only 30 remain. And they are told that, and they realize that they are the very kings they sought. Very Sufi mystical teaching because in the words of Nietzsche become who you are your inner being already is but we have to reach that realization the word si in, from the word simorg means 30 and morg means birds 30 birds 
C also reminds us of the note C, the hydrogen C12, because when you perfect those energies in yourself, you become a ibis bird, a great master of resurrection who can go anywhere, travel anywhere, has complete freedom, dominion over those laws, and can enter the jinn state, travel anywhere. So some island VR mentions that we have to transform ourselves into serpent birds, into Quetzalcoatl, kings, eagles. To go back to Nietzsche's uh, reference, we must be like an eagle above the abyss. Or we must become Naga kings, serpent kings. Transform ourselves into serpents of wisdom, which have allegorical meaning, but also even physical meaning, because many masters in the Aztec and Mayan ray were able to transform themselves into shapeshift because they had an affinity with nature and because they learned to work with the Divine Mother. You even find this teaching in Islam, especially, or in the Christian monks or apostles who were able to travel out of prison, I believe. There was one apostle, escaped my memory, who was enchained and in prison, but he escaped. Might have been Peter. Uh, but you also find in Islam that Muhammad traveled from Mecca to Jerusalem on the back of a mystical creature. His physical body was taken into the internal planes and he traveled literally to those places and then entered the seven heavens of the tree of life, the seven sephiroth and even beyond. And then his critics especially were from his own family. His uncle, I believe, was condemning him and didn't believe anything that he did and told Muhammad, raise one foot up and he did. And then he said, raise your other foot up. And Prophet Muhammad said, I can't. How is it that you cannot lift both feet up in the air when you said you traveled from Mecca to Jerusalem? Because obviously people are very skeptical. And he says, I did not say that I went. I said that I was taken. We don't have that power. Divinity does. If divinity wants you to have that experience and you're working with jinn science, you can have that experience very easily. But it just takes a lot of discipline and work. And it's so simple and profound that people don't get it. How is it that I can put my body in the internal planes? This is something that people who are so materialistic don't understand. We're very skeptical. But personally, I've worked with gin science. I won't explain what I've seen and done, but it's a very real thing. But it's very simple. It doesn't take, doesn't take some kind of, uh, you know, complicated thing. The procedures are very simple and I'll give you some exercises that you can do in the astral, that you can do in your own work. And so it's a very real teaching, very profound. And someone very gives many experiences about that. But personally, because humanity is so skeptical, I avoid talking about that. So we must become serpent birds, serpent kings, transform into crocodiles of Sebek in Egypt. So we achieve that ascension into the superior worlds by first descending. In order to reach heavenly states, we have to face our own diabolic mind. This is simply a law of nature. We find that in the opera Turandot that we just uh, spoke about, where first we have to create the solar bodies, Act 2, where he faces the trials and ordeals of the princess Turandot, the Divine Mother, Shekinah create the solar body so that he becomes 
a serpent bird with the possibility of perfecting himself completely. And then in the third act, descending into the, the darkness of Lilith and Nahima to fight against the mind, to eliminate the ego completely. And in this way, the initiate has to experience the drama of Christ, the passion of Christ, by descending through the nine hells relating to the moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. So that respectively one can ascend those heavens after conquering those inferior dimensions and going up. And one gains more power little by little as divinity sees that one is becoming more responsible. So we must become transformed into crocodiles like Sebek, a symbol of the spirit. Of course, the serpent always reminds us of the Kundalini, the spiritual force of the Divine Mother. And the crocodile refers to a great predatory creature that conquers the waters. And we have to conquer our own waters, which is our sexual energy. Without controlling that, we have nothing. But uh, it is in that way we transform our lunar astral body into a solar mind. We discard Cain in the Bible. Cain is a symbol of the mind, the intellect, which is always rationalizing, hunting, and trying to acquire things and develop itself, but at the expense of the Abel, Habel, the soul. We have to descend seven times and ascend as a crocodile seven times. Lower seven sephiroth, or the lower hells, into the higher seven sephiroth. So in this way, we, we develop ourselves and transform little by little, getting knowledge of the tree of life. So Samael and Veor and Gurdjieff spoke abundantly how we must free ourselves from the world of 48 laws, the world of 24 laws, the, wor the world of 12 laws, the world of 6 laws, the world of 3 laws, and go to the one law, which is the absolute, relating to the ray of creation and the tree of life. And little by little, we're transforming ourselves into divine beings or becoming what we already are our inner God. It's all a matter of stripping away what is superfluous and unnecessary. As Rumi taught, your job is not to seek for love, but to seek only the barriers you have placed in your way before it. So that's a reference to working on the ego. Many people want to have power in heaven. They want to become transformed, have jinn experiences, travel in the jinn state, do all these really wonderful things, but without working on the mind. Because there are many people who know how to fly in the air and travel throughout space, or the air, better said. But not all of them are positive. There are black jinns, black initiates, who know how to put their physical body in the inferior fourth dimension, the lunar sphere and hell. And so they can have abilities and fly and do these things, which, of course, they do in the public and amazes many people. And, of course, you have skeptics who say that who disagree. But personally, I've, in the astral plane, have faced many of such these witches. If you're familiar with the story of the harpies in Greek mythology, those are real creatures. Werewolves are, are real. They take on the shapes of animals in the internal planes, but in the negative sense, in a demonic way. I remember being in Egypt in the astral plane, and I wanted to enter the temple there, but as I was trying to find my way, I was in the desert, and I was attacked by a whole horde of werewolves. They just came at me, looking for me. So in Egypt, there's a lot of black magic. Likewise, in Egypt, I remember 
awakening in that state and being given a lot of light from the Temple of Giza, where they were helping me, the White Lodge. I remember seeing myself in third person as a crowd of harpies came in. And if you're not familiar with the Greek mythology, they have the faces of women and the bodies of sparrowhawks. So it's the same Egyptian teaching, but in the black way, because a lot of black magic is in Egypt. And so they were attacking me and screeching and howling like in the movies. But I was perfectly fine because the initiates of Giza were giving me light and they were defending me from them. And so they couldn't harm me. And that was in order for me to get to the temple so that they can teach me things. But harpies are real. Those are women witches who know how to put their physical bodies in the inferior fourth dimension. They're very wicked, and the Greek myths talk about them abundantly. They know how to transform themselves in the black way, in the evil way. Ibn Arabi, who is the, one of the greatest Sufi initiates, was asked by a student, so-and-so can fly. And the master Ibn Arabi said, well, does he follow the Quran? And the man said, no. And he says, leave him, leave him be. And even birds can fly in the air. So what? Not that important. Why get attached to powers? And why follow someone who is having those abilities but is not working in chastity? It means they're demonic. They're negative. I remember in the third book of the Aeneid, Aeneas and the Trojans were landing in the Strophides, it's the island of the Harpies, when they slaughtered many cows there in order to have a feast in which they were attacked by these harpies, meaning we're trying to work with the fire because the cow and a goat, symbolically speaking, has the tatva tejas. So when we're working with our body and transmuting our energies, we're developing light, we start to get attacked by many of these sorcerers. There's a Latin mantra for shape-shifting called est, sit, esto, fiat, which you can read about in the book uh, Alchemy and Kabbalah in the Tarot. We also have transubstantiation, the teachings of the Eucharist. It's stated that the ancient Lord of Atlantis practiced this blood pact of the apostles with Christ. In this ritual, which is entirely positive, Master Abramento took a drop of his blood, mixed it in a chalice with his disciples which they mixed, and then they drank with unfermented wine, grape juice. I know the Catholic Church likes to use alcohol, but we don't use alcohol. We use grape juice, unfermented. It's the same wine, but not poisonous. And in the pact, they are mixing their energies from the astral body with each other. And of course, the apostles who performed this ritual were uh, resurrected. So they already reached the heights. Or they reached the, they already were great masters at that point. And so they came to teach this essential science of working with the bread and wine of the Lord. And in this path, we need to work daily with the Eucharist. It's a very simple practice. It involves prayer and invoking our inner God so that we can charge the bread and the wine, the grape juice on our altar, with crucic force. And in that way, we feed our heart because our heart needs to be filled with the solar energy. And this is how we are joined to the body of Christ. Not as a, necessarily a physical sense, but spiritually speaking. So it's a blood pact. The grape is the blood of the Lord. 
in which we assimilate atoms and energy is so essential for our development. And why the bread? Because the solar energy makes the wheat to germinate. Rice, grain, flour, which is essential for our life. The grapevine is also an allegory of how the solar energy creates life in darkness. Gives life to the stump on the earth so that it can flourish with flowers of the soul. And in this ritual, the Gnostic priest learns to perceive the cosmic Christ when performing the ritual, invoking the Lord. And Salman Vera mentions in Arcanum 14 in his book, Teron Kabbalah, how to perform this ritual. You simply have an altar, you have a piece of bread, a, piece of grape, a cup of grape juice, pray on your knees, say the Our Father. You can do it in Latin if you can. It's powerful to use Latin mantras. Pater noster quies in cielis, sanctificetur nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, secut in cielo et in terra. Param nostrum superstantialum da nobis odi, et dimite nobis debita nostra, secut et nos dimitibus debateribus nostris, et nos inducas in tentationum se libernos amalo, que tuum is regnum, potentia et gloria, in secula seculorum. Amen. Blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, both the bread and the wine. And imagine that this energy of Christ descending into your home is filling those substances and awakening the solar energy and the elements so that we can charge our heart. Which is why in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 26 to 28, Christ said, Take, eat, this is my body. Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood. In the book of John, chapter 6, verse 56, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwells in me, and I in him. Because we need that energy in order to invoke tomb, the solar logos. The mantra tomb invokes keter, chokmah, bina into our three brains, into our altar, into our home. And of course, we have a lot of ego to fight with. So we need to assimilate Christ daily, which is why Salman Vera says in his books, like the seven words included in the book, The Divine Science, the Gnostic must persevere daily with the bread and wine. Simple, he just takes five minutes, not even, or however long you want to pray is really important. And make it sincere and ask your inner God on your knees, help me to receive light so that I can change. Because like the runes, we assimilate billions of Christic atoms which go into our consciousness, our heart, and help us to fight against our mind. And so sincerity is always the most powerful thing. It's also significant that Again, the grain, the seed emerges from the darkness. All of us are in a lot of suffering with ego, with pain, with karma, with conflicts. But when you work with your seed, your sexual energy, you learn to transform your mind and transform your heart. And then when you're working in chastity, that is how the Eucharist becomes powerful. Uh, Dion Fortune wrote that the reason why the Catholic Church has subsisted for as long as it has is because they were doing the rituals in Latin. So obviously they were invoking Christ with those Latin prayers, which are very powerful. But the problem is that the priests are not working in alchemy. They're not chaste. Or if they're abstinent, they're not transmuting their energy. So therefore they're stagnant waters. And therefore that light, that energy cannot assimilate. So if you want to have that energy work in you, it's important that we're working in chastity. Because that's how you form the circuitry with yourself to the absolute, is by working with 
your spine, your valve, and your creative energies, the tree of knowledge. So the gods emerge from the abyss and become lost in the absolute. We need to face great temptations and ordeals in order to exist in the, in the heavens. As Samayan Vera mentions, hell is the womb of heaven, the antechamber. Uh, but the, the only way that we can get out is, again, working with Christ. Because that energy is, is what takes one to the Father. This is why Jesus said, none can ascend to the Father but through me, he said, which is the energy. Because the solar light gives life to everything. And without that, we cannot ascend. It's interesting that the word vine has many etymological meanings which are profound. Vino, vida, vid, which is wine, life, grapevine, point towards vis or strength or vision, spiritual insight. Vis also relates as a prefix to the word virtus, moral strength, and virgo, to be a virgin, to be chaste. So we empower meditation by working with that ritual, which is very powerful, because well, runes are exceptional, but the bread and the wine of the Gnostics is the essential key. So in this ritual, we transform the matter into energy. Einstein said, matter becomes energy, energy becomes matter. And so we need energy. We need a lot of spiritual force to have the energy and enthusiasm, the inspiration to meditate daily and to face ourselves and to be consistent. So when you work with the bread and wine, the sexual energy is being sublimated to the heart. And that communion literally helps us to transmute because, again, the blood of the Lord is not only the semen but also the, the bread and wine, which, of course, when they unite in us, becomes powerful. So Salman also mentions that we can perform the Eucharist after sexual magic. And in this way, we continue to have strength for our path. So in this lecture, we've talked a lot about transformation, transubstantiation, and transmutation. But now we're going to talk about the Hebrew letter Nun, as well as its Arabic equivalent. Because if you look back on the image of the card, we find the Hebrew letter Nun in the top right of this shape. The Hebrew letter Nun initiates each verse from 105 to 112 within the 119th Psalm of the Old Testament. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Since it is through noon, working with the sperm, the ovum, the creative energies, because noon in Aramaic means fish. It's the fish of our sexual matter that swims in the waters of life, which we learn to transmute into energy. I have sworn and I confirm it through chastity, to keep your righteous judgments. I am greatly afflicted, we can say, by karma, because in the 14th Arcanum, 1 plus 4 equals 5. Karma, wars, battles, pain. O Yod Chava, give me life according to your word. Or we can also say, give me temperance, balance, equanimity, equilibrium, 
Please, O Yodchava, accept the free offering of my mouth and teach me your judgments. My life is in your, my hand continually, which we can say between the lines is through working in ordeals. Yet I do not forget your law, chastity, or Canon 14. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I do not wander from your precepts, which we could say is since we remain serene before the slanderers and the ordeals of fire. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are a rejoicing of my heart. I have bowed my heart always to do your statutes to the end. So the word noon in Aramaic means fish, the sperm or ovum. The symbol of Christianity is the fish of Pisces. Noon is literally spelled noon, vav, noon. And notice that you have an opening noon and also a final noon, noon sofit, which in some Hebrew letters, the final letter of the calligraphy also is a little different. Sometimes it extends down. The final noon is in this form. It's a symbol of how from the waters of sexuality which emerge from the absolute, the void, the nothingness, which we also can say is ha shamayim, the heavens, which are formed through alchemy in us. Those forces descend from the Ein Sofor, down our Vav, and then enter into our sexual glands, which, of course, like we do with the Rune Man, you're invoking Om, Tat, Sat, the energy is going down into you, into your sexual organs, and then we're invoking in other runes, we're transmuting the energies, sending it back up. So we have the waters of life from above, Nun, which descend down into us through our Vav, our spine, and now we have to return that energy back up to the Absolute. So we have the superior waters of the Akasha within nature, but also within our body. We have waters within our brain, but also waters within sex. And when you unite the two through alchemy, you form the perfected human being. Noon also relates to the Ain Sof and Kabbalah. You even hear the word Sof, or the letter Noon within Ain, which means nothingness. Sof means end or limit. Ain Sof means no limit, which is our reference to our inner star, our inner divine light, which is in the, the waters of the abstract, absolute space. So Salman Vera mentions in his books that we are the synthesis of that. In synthesis, we are that one point, that light, which has always been, always will be, and always has existed. So that is the, the noon that swims within the great abstract universal life, which is free of any condition and, and limitation. Pure movement, pure freedom, bliss. Or as Swami Shivananda wrote, the being is, or divinity is divine mother. The Ain Sof, we can say, is truth, knowledge, bliss, absolute. Sat, Chit, Ananda. So noon in us is inactive. Those principles of the waters of life need to be developed, which we do so through initiation. So Sat, Chit, Ananda is actualized when we work with temperance. And so we have to also remember from our Khanum 2 lecture that not all the Ain Sofs in the Absolute have knowledge of themselves. So there are some who only by doing the work can return to the Ain Sof and then that 
star has cognizance of his own bliss. Truth, knowledge, bliss. Meaning that star has knowledge of its own happiness preceding itself. Because in us, in most people, is the Ain Sof has no wisdom yet. It has to be developed by first that light descends down the tree of life into the universe to the cosmic day. And then has to return through initiation to the path of revolution. So again, Sat-Chitananda are the three flowers of the temperance card. Which also reminds us of object-subject union. Because in the absolute, if you have an experience where you unite with your own self, you are no longer you, but there is the soul lost in the ecstasy of the being. There is only, he is the subject. You are seeing yourself as him, as the seer, in the act of witnessing itself. Which is why the Muslims speak a lot about witnessing God. But of course, in the esoteric sense, this is very profound. In the Sufi schools, they refer to object-subject union as madkur, dakir, indikir. The invoked, the invoker, and the invocation. They all become united within Ain Sof, which is Allah, the abstract absolute space, the star within the void. And of course, we reach that light through working with noon. And a husband and wife working with their own sperm or ovum, they're working to create the soul, which we see in the letter noon here. Noon, vav, noon. One of the noons is masculine, the other is feminine, and they're united through willpower in a matrimony. This is also where we get words like nun or priest, a female, female practitioner of the doctrine. Of course, in the ancient monasteries, they used to know this science where the nuns would work with their noon daily. And then as they gain temperance, stability, equanimity, and definition within themselves, sincerity and seriousness, they would be partnered with a husband. So the priests would have their priestess. But before that point, most practitioners start when they're single and then earn their marriage. We also have references in the Old Testament to Yahshua, son of Nun, in the book of Yoshua, which is the book of Yeshua, Christ. Because Yoshua, Yeshua means Savior. So what does it mean to be the Messiah, son of Nun, son of the fish? Of course, we know Jesus is the founder of the Piscean Doctrine, the doctrine of Christianity. And in the book of Yahshua, we find that Moses was taken to the Promised Land. While Yahshua had to lead the people of Israel out of or into the into uh, into their homeland, it's a symbol of how when Moses the causal body is developed, we have to enter into the promised land in degrees, little by little, by working with our our noon, the sperm or ovum. So that sperm or ovum is the seed of life, the germ that can give birth to any cosmos, any human being any solar body. Which is why in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 16, we find the following quote. Now to Abraham and his seed, sperm, noon, where the promise is made, he saith not unto seeds, offspring, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So I spoke about the Eucharist as being the seed of the Lord, but also the sexual energy is the seed of Christ, in which our inner Abraham, our spirit, is inflamed. Because Abraham in the Bible represents chesed, 
our inner God, who works in us when we're working in alchemy more profoundly. Noon is also the Ark of the Covenant, as I said. The Ark of Noah, which saves the initiates from drowning in the waters of degeneration, of suffering. Noah is spelled nun He. Also, the word Jonah is yod vav nun He. So Jonah was swallowed by a whale, the Hebrew letter Nun, through resurrection. Because when you are completing the path, you are swallowed by the whale, by the serpent, and become a serpent king. Uh, Leviathan, Levitanim, as we'll talk about. Yona reminds us of Io Na, Io, the Divine Mother. Io, Ram Io, Mary, the Virgin of the Sea. So the Divine Fire of Ram, the Ram, the Christ, is within Io, or within the sea, within Mer, La Mer. And that fire is within the sperm of ovum, the noon. So this noon is the ark that is going to save us from drowning within karma and suffering within the ego. And it's also synonymous with Christ, the Savior, from the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 37 to 39. But as the days of Noah were, and so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be, for as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came, and took them all away, so shall also be the coming of the Son of Man be. It's also interesting that when we talked about Arcanum 13, the letter Mem, the waters, contains the 14th letter, Nun, because then the waters from the fish and are synonymous. If you want to work with the waters, you have to work with your Nun. It's also interesting that the Hebrew letter Mem relates to 40, noon with 50. Jesus was 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness being tempted. And likewise, the Israelites were 40 years in the wilderness, lost within suffering until they were liberated by Jehovah. And there were 40 days and 40 nights of a deluge in which Noah and his ark was suspended above the waters of the ocean before the waters came down again and brought them to dry land. Just symbolic. Not only just a, something historical, but something psychological in us. We also find that the form of the fish, Typhon, he was the devil figure within the mysteries of Egypt. He cut the body of Osiris into pieces. And then Isis, the divine mother, wanted to resurrect Osiris. Because in us, our inner God is dead. Like Nietzsche says in Zarathustra, doesn't this hermit in the woods understand that God is dead? It's a symbol. How the spirit is not active in us unless we're working in alchemy. So Isis, the divine mother, wanted to resurrect Osiris, bring our being back to life within us. She only found 13 pieces. The 14th piece, which was the phallus, was not found. So 13 is death, as we explained. And Osiris had to pass three days in the sepulcher in order to resurrect, according, and then according to the Egyptian mysteries, which Jesus followed in suit, or any master of initiation accomplishes when reaching resurrection. So there are three days 
The first day, descending into hell, creating the soga bodies, which is act two of Turndo. Second day, annihilating the ego completely, that's act three, in which he faces all the trials and temptations of the people of Peking trying to persecute him, get his secret. And the third day is when one achieves the resurrection, or Caliph the prince marries Turndo with that great chorus at the end of that opera. Or the whale vomits Jonah. Leviathan. Noon. So Isis didn't find the phallus because, symbolically speaking, lust was dead in that initiate. It means that he is no longer fornicated but is fully pured, purified. So only by achieving radical death of the ego can we enter the temple of Ma'at, Mut, death, the death of the ego. There's um, verses from the Bible which are very profound. Talking about the fifth day of Genesis, the great Taninim, the great whales created on the fifth day of Genesis, which is the fifth initiation of major mysteries in which a master is swallowed by the whale, or better said, swallowed by the serpent at that level, which is the fifth degree. And the Elohim said, let the waters... Hamaim, bring forth abundantly the nefesh chaya, moving creature that has life, and fowl that flies above the earth in the open firmament of heaven, hashamaim. And Elohim created the great whales, taninim gedulim, which reminds us of gedulah, the spirit. Because when one reaches the fifth initiation of fire, one is working with gedulah, the spirit, chesed. And one is raise the serpent up, the whale, up that vertebrae of the spine and the causal body. And that's how one gives life to one's spirituality. And every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly, after their kind, which in Hebrew is mina, min, which is where you get words like amin. Min means kind or sex. And when you work with aleph in prayer and transmutation, you bring the energy to your heart, you say, Amen. Raising mina through aleph in your lungs to your heart. That is uh, consecrating oneself. And God saw that it was good. Elohim saw that it was good. And Elohim blessed them saying, Be fruitful and increase. Be fruitful and rabbah. Master. And fill the waters and the seas and let follow master in the earth. In the evening and the morning were a fifth day. So people, a lot of Jews translate this as be fruitful and fornicate. Be fruitful and multiply. But the real meaning is be fruitful and rabah. Be fruitful and master your waters, your noon, your energies, your sperm or ovum. And in that way, you become a great whale, a taninim from the tribe of Levi. Or as George Frederick Handel immortalized in his Messiah, and he shall purify the sons of Levi. In the music, I won't repeat, but uh, Levi Tanim, Taninim, the great whales of Levi who are working with alchemy. Because to be from the tribe of Levi is to be working with transmutation. So the fish have got obviously swim in the element of water, mem. The fowl with aleph, the wind. And the land creatures with shin, the fire. When you work with noon, you're working with water, fire, air, earth. Because all the elements are within our seed. The seed is the germ that can give life to anything. Human life. And spiritual life. 
And so we know that from our studies that we tend to be gravitating more towards one of the three brains. Sometimes more, we're more intellectual, more emotional, more motor instinctive sexual. But we have to learn how to control and master the fowls of the air, the cattle or the beasts of the earth, and the great whales of the ocean, which are the most difficult to control, which is the tiny neem, the great whales. We have to bring that energy up by controlling it. It's also interesting that the Quran and many Sufi scriptures talk a lot about noon, but in the Arabic sense. So the letter noon in the Quran is mentioned many times. It's one of the separated letters. Al-Muqtata'at at the beginning of several surahs. And there are many Muslims who've tried commentating on this for many decades, hundreds of years. Well, most of them have not explained the Kabbalistic and alchemical significance of it. So in an old Arab myth, it stated that the world was once suspended or held on the back of a fish, which is a symbol of how our own physical matter or earth, spiritually speaking, our Malkut, is controlled by the waters. So some island Vera mentions an igneous rose that the lost word, Christ, is like a gigantic fish or a tiny name from the tribe of Levi, half blue, half green, emerging from the depth of the ocean. So we explain about the meaning of Taninim and the great lost word within the third act of Turandot. We also find letter Nun initiating the Surah 68, Al-Kalam, the pen. Nun, by the pen and what they inscribe, you are not, O Muhammad, by the favor of your Lord, a madman, and indeed for you is a reward uninterrupted. And indeed you are of a great moral character. So you will see and they will see which of you is afflicted by a devil. So in this calligraphy we find the first verse of that surah mentioned. Noon, by the pen and by what they inscribe. Some say that this Arabic letter noon is like an inkwell from which the pen of divinity inscribes, receives its ink, which is a symbol the pen is a symbol of the Logos, Christ, who inscribes the Word, who writes all the principles of God within our heart, who inscribes those virtues and qualities when we're working. And so the pen is the Logos, and noon is the ink, the energy by which he writes, because we cannot have our inner God write in us, inscribe the principles and Torah of the 22 arcana within our being. If we have not if we don't have energy, if we don't work with noon. So, that power is infinite, but we have to work with noon. If we want to unite lower noon through our vav to the noon of the Ain Sof, the Absolute. From Surah Al-Luqman, Surah 31, verse 27. And if whatever trees upon the earth were pens and the sea was ink, Replenished thereafter by seven more seas. The words of Allah would not be exhausted. Indeed, Allah is exalted in might and wise. Because that energy is in, eternal. It permeates all of space. But of course, we are the creation of the, of the divine, which, or we are created in the image of the divine when we work with noon. We also find a beautiful Sufi teaching from the principles of Sufism by Al-Kushari, where he explains that 
By working with noon, we are always regenerating ourselves. We're drinking from the fountain of eternal life. Ali ibn Abu Aid said, Yahya ibn Muad wrote to Abu Yazid, I am intoxicated with how much I have drunk from the cup of love. Abu Yazid wrote back to him, Someone else has drunk the oceans, <clears throat> excuse me, someone else has drunk the oceans of the heavens and the earth, and his thirst is not yet quenched. His tongue is hanging out and he is asking, Is there any more? Because that is the fountain of life. When you're transmuting, you continually regenerate yourself. And therefore, with ecstasy, one is always approaching one's wife or one's husband in order to engage in the fountain of youth daily with purity. So the Hadith Qudzi also relates something beautiful from Prophet Muhammad's teaching about Al-Kalam, the pen. The first thing God created was the pen. Then he said to it, Write. It responded, What shall I write? He said, Write the decrees, Al-Qadar, of what will be until the hour of resurrection. So, of course, this is symbolic. We say that fate is inscribed, is written. Many people repeat this many times in different religions, whether Christian, Jewish, Muslim. But what does it really mean to have one's fate inscribed? So, when we are working with noon, we have the, the being, we're giving the being power to inscribe our destiny. But those who fornicate and ejaculate their noon have no power by which to give to their being. So it's that he can create development in the soul. So the record of the infidels, the black magicians, the fornicators, their book is in Sayin, according to the Quran. And then the book of the chaste ones is in Ilion. Hell, heaven. Inferior worlds, superior worlds. And Samayan Vyar mentions many times in the revolution of Beelzebub that when Beelzebub wanted to leave the Black Lodge, he had to enter a temple and go up to the altar, to their book, and erase his name from the book of Sain, the lost ones. So it's a material thing in the astral plane. If you have certain allegiances to the, that cult, one has to abandon the Black Lodge and erase one's name so that one can be inscribed in the book of life. We do so by working with noon, the energies of God, so that we inscribe our fate within heaven. So there's a commentator from the Sufis, his name is Al-Qutubi. He wrote that there are three types of pens. One, that God commanded to write all that it would be into the day of resurrection. Those with which the angels record the deeds of human beings and those with which human beings write. So obviously there's a literal pen, but there's also the fate of those who enter the path and strive for resurrection. That of course is very lofty, which not everyone follows. If people are not practicing chastity, they haven't even entered the doorway to approach the path, the straight path mentioned in the Quran. So, our fate is inscribed by how we use our sexual energy. Will it be for heavenly things or diabolic things? It depends. Depends on our actions. The Hebrew letter Nun is very profound because we find it in the end of names like Al-Rahman, the compassionate. Al-Rahim, or better said, Al-Nur, the light. Al-Nasir, the helper. And of course, the letter Nun helps us to work against our own mind and a fight against our karma. The 14th letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Nun. One plus four is five. Likewise, 
in Surah 68, the pen. Six plus eight is 14. Noon. So noon is what grants us light. Because in the Quran and the Muslim tradition, they say the al-nur, the light, is developed through chastity. There's a surah in the Quran called al-nur, the light. Which is very beautiful. It's very harsh for fornicators. Because it talks about the punishments of those who commit adultery and fornication, which, of course, people have interpreted literally for a long time and has served as the basis of Muslim communities. Of course, whether people understand the esoteric meaning of flagellation and cutting off the hands for punishing certain crimes in the Quran is different because the left hand is always the path of the fornicators. I remember personally one time in the astral plane, I was invoking my divine father and I was at a computer in my home, in my bedroom. And I looked at my hand and my left hand was gone. And my father came in and says, look, I found you. So I had my hand cut off because I was working against my own defects. So those punishments in that surah, cutting off hands and flagellations and lashings, people interpret literally. Obviously, you see the mess that the Middle East is in right now as a result of their fanaticism of interpreting that religion. But the symbolic meaning is that you have to cut off the hand of your ego. Don't act egotistically. As Jesus said, if your left eye offend you, pluck it out so that your whole body do not perish in hell. Same meaning. It's a symbol. So noon is chastity. It grants light. So we remember that Muhammad also ascended Jabal Nur, the mountain of light, in order to receive Al-Quran, the recitation, the verb. The word for mount or mountain is Jabal. You have the letter Ra, the letter R, or the Hebrew Rosh, if you want to use the Hebrew equivalent. To that word, you spell Jibril, Gabriel. Gabriel is the cross, Gebur Rael, the swastika of God that circulates all the energies in a marriage. And by working with Jibril is how you develop light. Jabal Nur, Jibril Nur, the light of Gabriel, because Muhammad is the light of Gabriel. He received his teaching from that, that angel. And when you receive the Quran, symbolically speaking, it's a symbol of receiving Christ. The verb. Because if you remember it from the myth, Muhammad was, Ill was allegedly illiterate, which historically speaking is not very accurate because he worked in, as a merchant. So it was very common knowledge that a lot of those practitioners or people who worked in that field were, had some knowledge of had some literacy. But in the Muslim tradition, they defend that he was unlettered, which of course in symbolic terms is very beautiful because every one of us is unlettered. When we don't work with the 22 arcana, we're not working in initiation. We don't have the letters of God inscribed as the 22 arcana within our heart. Yea, my Lord, I delight to do thy will. Thy Torah is within my heart, say the Psalms. So to be unlettered in Christian terms means to be deaf, dumb, blind, so that Christ can heal the soul that's fallen. But when we work with our sexual energy, our, our noon, we become lettered. We know how to read the scriptures. We know how to speak to humanity, we know how to communicate. We develop insight. When Muhammad was told by Jibreel on the mountain, recite, he said, I don't know how to read. He said, I don't know how. Gabriel said again, recite. He said a second time, I don't, I don't know how. And then a third time, recite. And then at the end, the prophet said, what shall I recite? 
It's a beautiful teaching because in our three brains, the being commands us to act. Intellectual brain, emotional brain, motor instinctive sexual brain. In the beginning, we don't know how to use our three brains. We tend to be imbalanced. We don't know how to walk spiritually. We don't have psychological equilibrium. But when you work with noon, you learn to read, recite, inscribe the principles of the 22 arcana. I had an experience about this similar. I, I imagine uh, being in Egypt many times in the astral plane. I remember I was invited in that temple there and they were showing me things about my development. Many of which I won't describe, but I remember being in a room filled with children learning sign language. Because I remember that at that point, or even now, I'm a child, learning to become like the essence, learning to communicate with speech, learning, not being able to speak, but learning to communicate, learning to incarnate the verb. So they're teaching me that you want to be lettered like Prophet Muhammad. You have to work with sign language, which is what we do with the runes, working with sign language. We're performing signs in our body in order to assimilate the energies of Christ by working with our noon, our spiritual force. And in this way, we charge ourselves. And there's a couple other uh, verses from the Surat al-Nur, which are very beautiful. I won't relate them here, but the whole surah is about chastity, the punishment for fornicators in the abyss, but more so how to develop light. So the fish, again, it relates to noon. And one last experience I'll relate to you, very brief, was I've always been in the habit of getting up sometimes at 4 a.m. in the morning to transmute practice. I remember one occasion I was doing certain mantras, pranayama, and falling asleep. And then I looked at the sky in the astral plane to invoke Samayan Vior. And I remember he came down and all I saw were fish and a big line follow, coming at me, and circulating, circulating, circulating around me. You know, I understood immediately. You know, he's telling me, work with your noon, your energies, your sperm, your ovum. So noon is precisely that substance in which we inscribe the principles of God in us. So in this image, we have the letter noon transcribed over the human body because by raising the powers of Yasod to our brain, if we were a female, we become a nun. If we are male, we become a priest, a monk. Salman Vyar gives some exercises relating to the Hebrew letter noon, which are very powerful, very beautiful from his book, Alchemy and Kabbalah and the Tarot. He stated that by working with transmutation, our nervous systems become charged because our fluids in our spine as well as our nervous systems are the depository of all the forces of noon when we circulate that power. After working in alchemy, we should learn to lie down in the dorsal decubitus position facing up on our back to work with the prostrate or uterine chakra. So we inhale the vital air direct the energies down the nervous, uh, nervous currents to our prostate with the intention of closing the sphincters between the seminal vessels and the urethra. And then by sending energy, electromagnetic force to that part of our body, we pronounce the mantra M, like a woman giving birth. So Krum Heller, who was the teaching of Samayan Vior, stated that initiation begins with M and S. 
Reminds us of mantras like S M Hon, which is a mantra to heal the mental body for those who are mentally ill. It's a powerful mantra for equilibrating the mind. So the vials M and S we look with the prostate or uterus and the sexual and the space of the spine. And those energies can help us to circulate the nervous currents, the energies of noon within our spinal column. And likewise, by working with noon, we work with our tree of life because noon is the seed that gives birth to the whole tree of life. When we work with the three forms of magic, a priesthood, we're working with the letter noon. You have the logoic triangle above, which is the chop trinity, working with the energies of Christ, with tomb. We have the ethical triangle relating to our spirit, our divine soul, human soul. And then those forces manifest within the three forms of magic we perform in the physical plane. Elemental magic, ceremonial, ritual, Eucharistic magic, the Gnostic unction, and sexual magic. And by working with those three sciences, we work, or art forms, we work with noon. In conclusion, I relate to some practices you can use, which are in the books. There's a practice for the Jin state that the Master Samuel gives. Again, an alchemy and Kabbalah in the Tarot for the practice of transformation. The devotee must sit at a table and cross his arms, placing them on the table. While resting his head on his arms, he must willingly fall asleep. The student must relax his mind by emptying it of any type of thoughts until it is blank. Thereafter, imagine the slumber state that precedes the dreaming state. Identify with it and fall asleep. When the student feels that he is slumbering, he should get up from his chair, but keep the slumber state as if he was a somnambulist and attempt a long jump as far as possible with the intention of submerging himself within hyperspace with his physical body. Thereafter, with a pencil, he must mark the exact spot on the floor where his foot landed. As the student practices this exercise, he will notice that each time, the length of the jump is longer and longer. Finally, the day will arrive in which he will perform a jump that is beyond average. This will give the student joy because it will indicate that his physical body is now penetrating into hyperspace. Finally, constancy, patience, willpower, and tenacity will grant triumph to the student. Thus, on any given day, the student will definitively sustain himself with his physical body in hyperspace. With his physical body, he will penetrate into the internal worlds. He will be in jinn state. Then, within a few moments, he will be able to transport himself to any place on the earth. He will become an investigator of the superior worlds. And lastly, there's a little prayer that the Master gives for this exercise. Before initiating the former jinn practice, the student must invoke the genie of jinn science. The devotee will will invoke the master Oguara many times as follows. I believe in God, I believe in Oguara, and I believe in all the genie of Jin science. Take me with my physical body to all the temples of Jin science. Ograra, Oguara, Oguara, carry me. This invocation must be repeated thousands of times before falling asleep. And for those who are listening online, we have a practice filmed by Glorian Publishing for the practice of the Eucharist, which you can listen to and read or view in order to know how to perform the Eucharist. So do you have any questions?
Yeah. So you can have a jinn state by taking your physical body in Yesod, Hod, Netzach, Tifereth, and even beyond. So a lot of people seem to want to disassociate Malkut from the other Sephiroth because it seems that our physical body, which tends to be what we know most, is separate. But we know that our physical body is the union of thought, feeling, will. We manifest our internal psychology in our physical brain, three brains. So our physical brain is a vehicle by which the mind acts. Likewise, the emotional brain, the heart, and our physical body, the motor instinctive sexual desires. So the jinn state happens when you take your body into hyperspace, fourth dimension, fifth dimension, sixth, and even beyond. Like Prophet Muhammad did in the al uh, miraj, the, the ascension of the Prophet up the seven heavens, up until he reached even the very height, the Ain Sof, and was communicating with his inner God. So a lot of people tend to get stuck on that concept that how is it I can bring my physical body in that state? We've got to remember that your physical body is merely the vessel which receives all the forces of the tree of life. And so that vehicle can go up to the heavenly worlds. But we tend to get stuck here, identify too much. So the key to Jin science is faith and sleepiness. That's it. Yeah, so that's how you empower your jinn practice is transmute, feed your vital body with good forces, good energies, and transmute a lot and meditate a lot because those chakras awaken like flowers, like the three flowers in the card when we're learning to work with noon. So if you want to learn jinn science very well, work with your noon, your creative energies or principles because that awakens the flowers of the soul. In a very dynamic way. When I lived in the Southwest, like over in San Diego, I noticed I was able to do that a lot more. Is that, could it be that where you live, is, it's easier to do it? Or? Do uh, gin science? Yeah, to, to leave the body. Well, well, leaving the body is one thing. You know, some people get confused with uh, leaving the body into the astral plane and then taking the body into the fifth dimension, the fourth dimension, even beyond. But that's what projection is obviously tends to be a little more difficult in certain environments. Obviously when you're, or be conscious astral projections. When you live in the cities, obviously you're surrounded by a lot of filth. So it's always important that in your homes that you perfume yourselves with sage, incense, cleanse yourself so that your home and your environment are charged with good energy. And in that way, learn to make your home your temple so that when you bring in good forces in your home, you have a nice environment in which to sleep. And in that way, it's easier to ask for project. Some cities are obviously more dense than others. Obviously, New York is very bad. I mean, I've visited there many times, but, you know, Chicago is bad too, but New York is much worse. But um, in the same sense, it's always... Uh, important not necessarily to look at our environment but to look at our practice too because it's easier to project when we're meditating and annihilating the ego because when we do that because in astral projection you leave your physical body behind in the physical plane but jinn state your body goes with you into hyperspace 
But yeah, different, uh, different dynamic. But very achievable. Yeah, and also too, you had the story of Jesus walking on water. It's the same thing. He was in hyperspace. Many prophets have that ability. In Buddhism, you find the same thing. Masters able to go through walls and travel through rock without harming themselves. So powers that a lot of people would love to have. Important to mention, as he said, you don't have the power. You take it. And you have that experience is because they want you to, and you have to earn it. But um, yeah, it's a very uh, powerful experience because someone Vera mentions in uh, Perfect Matrimony that if you have that experience, you'll sense, you'll feel yourself bloated from the feet up, from the ankles up. And you see your, the, hyper, the energies of hyperspace expanding your body in the internal worlds. So when you read about, like I used to read about like, people that, um, well, they claim, but uh, a lot of them you know, have, would say that they were abducted by aliens. Sure. Is that really what is going on? Well, there's, uh, they, there are many people. That they were taken through walls and, and, and so on and so forth. Well, those experiences, uh, alien abductions are very common because other humanities are looking at us and seeing how abnormal we are. So they want to study us because our planet is a big mess. Nothing like the other planets of our solar system or other humanities there. But the gene science is, uh, is different. It's when... Literally, your body goes into the internal planes. Another exercise the master gives, Samayan Vior, where if you're in the astral plane, you can invoke your physical body to come to you and enter into your astral body. Well, it takes a lot of lucidity and faith. But we tend to get identified with our physical body too much when our body is a, is a vehicle we tend to sometimes believe in too much more real than the internal planes too. But you have those experiences, it, it unfolds for you. Um, the physical body is a wonderful vehicle, but being identified with it is a problem. I remember I wanted to have that, I wanted to have that experience too. I wanted to take my physical body into the jinn state when I was already awake in the astral plane. I invoked Sama and Vior, but then I, all of a sudden I felt very weak. And I felt that my physical body was going to pull me back in because I'm identifying too much with it. I looked in the sky and I saw some, uh, Master Samael came and he was showing me what was going on. He showed me a sign of McDonald's in the, in the sky. I was, I was, at first I was like, this is really weird. And then I realized, then I woke up, I'm like, then I realized me identifying with my body is like eating McDonald's, eating garbage. Because you know, it shouldn't be identified with your body. Your body should not control you. you should not, neither your hunger should control you, but you should be in control of yourself. So I remember that. It was a big sign, McDonald's, and I was like, really alarmed. It is so unusual, right? But that's the language of the internal planes. But there's, you know, I was reflecting on the meeting. I was like, yeah, this is, my master's showing me that I'm eating McDonald's, being identified with my body. So Jin State occurs when you control your body, when your body becomes a useful vehicle, and when your divine mother wants you to have that experience. When you speak to other masters, is that through your own voice? Or is it, is it like your own voice saying something to you? Or is it actually... 
Oh, when you're uh, in the astral plane, you, in your own voice, you can also do it telepathically, mentally. No, I mean like if something's said to you, is it like through the voice in your mind? Oh, uh, when you're teaching or when you're helping people or instructing people, you gotta use your head, intellect, but it's more like your heart. Think with your heart, feel with your head. It's intuitive. It's the best. When the intellect gets in the way, then, then the, the mind is clumsy, like a donkey. So I invite you to practice the Eucharist, essential practice, which Samayan Vera mentions we should do daily, so that we charge our temple, our physical body, with force. And in that way, we learn to assimilate the blood of Christ and empower our practices. Also, we have exercises of Jin science, of transformation, which you can study on our website and the books of Gorian Publishing as well. So I thank you for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.